You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. While you're there, you're experiencing 14 to 16 hour days, and it is beyond exhausting. And then you come back and your head is swimming with everything you've learned and you've got about a week to get that stuff out of your head and out of everybody else's head into something, whether that's a report or a presentation, it doesn't matter. It has to get out of their head and into something. Otherwise, it's lost and, you know, they get caught up in their daily lives and their daily work tasks. Hello. Welcome to the next podcast, another episode, episode 58. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And that clip that you just heard was Lydia Oshilansky. Lydia is my guest on the show today and leads design for growth opportunities at Spotify. She was talking there about a challenge that's fundamental to good user-centered design work, especially within teams of a certain scale, codifying the results of research and experimentation in a way which makes them valuable for the long term. Of course, there's no substitute to bringing as many of the team as possible along to see user research being done firsthand. And Lydia, I talk about that too. But there's always going to be a wider potential audience for user experience research than those who can be there directly. So how do you go about ensuring that as much as possible from those field trips or other forms of research that you're doing gets not just preserved, but amplified? I think this is something which is so core to the practice of user-centered design. This is a discipline which thrives on the gathering of observations and on the generating of ideas. Now, whether you're doing that as an agency, doing speculative design projects internally uh, to keep your team inspired, uh, or you're an in-house team going out into the field to do research into a particular area, that work that you're doing is producing a flow of knowledge. Now, how you treat that knowledge, the process that you use to nurture it and turn it into usable insight, that's the foundation of good long-term practice. And when I advise companies on this, particularly those who are building a user experience team from scratch, I always try to emphasize to them the importance of language around this. How you describe that body of knowledge and that, that process of generating is important. And I like the word treasury. So the results of your field trips, the ideas which flow from your internal experiments, that the myriad other inputs which shape a design team's view of the world, they're the most valuable asset that a design organization has. So give them their due, value them, create time for them, store them in a treasury of some kind where they can continue to provide that value for the long term and for the widest possible group of people. So Lydia and I covered some of that in our chat, and I mean, it was really great to have the chance to hear more about the journey that she's been on throughout her career. So we met when she was at Shipstead, which is a big Scandinavian media group that owns newspapers and other media properties around the world. And she had asked me to give a talk to this cross-departmental community of practice that she was building around user experience within Shipstead. But she actually started agency side working for some of the agencies which then became the digital consulting giant LBI. And then she moved to Nokia as a usability specialist. Uh, she went on to become Google's research lead for emerging markets. Uh, then that time as, as VP of user experience at Shibsted. Uh, she had an interim role as chief product officer for Trinity Mirror, uh, another large publisher, um, before taking on this current role that she has leading design for growth opportunities at Spotify. So here's my conversation with Lydia Oshlensky. I hope you enjoy, and I'll be back at the end. I've been trying to piece together a little bit of the background, and I'm wondering if you can help me out with this. So going back through your LinkedIn. I'll freely admit I've been stalking you slightly on LinkedIn, <laughs> despite the fact we've known each other for a while. I thought I'd better do a bit of background checking here. So Ohio University to DePaul University, I kind of get it's the Midwest, although that's 500 miles in the Midwest, that's not actually a particularly huge distance. But then to London and then to Wales. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, What's the story? I yeah, I did a, at DePaul University, I, I was already living in Chicago and I was studying, I had originally studied psychology and I was working as a social worker for many years. 
I, I literally burned out, like I couldn't do it anymore. And I went back to DePaul University the first time for a computer science degree and sort of rediscovered human-computer interaction, which back then, it's like almost 20 years ago, was quite a new field. So I did a master's degree in human-computer interaction and fell in love and decided that what I wanted to do was a PhD. And so I started looking around for PhD programs. And what I was concerned about, whether, I mean, this, this is silly to say out loud now, but what I was concerned about is that PhDs in the U.S. can take upwards of 10 years. It really depends on where you go, what you're studying, who your advisor is, what your funding is. And at that point, I was already 30 years old. And I was like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing that. I want, I want in and out. I want to get a PhD. So I started looking around at other programs and realized that the UK had much stricter rules around how long a PhD student could just hang out. And I also am a bit of an Anglophile and grew up in a very Anglophile, Britophile family. So I was like, hey, well, I've always wanted to live in the UK. And then also at that time, my then partner was also doing his PhD. So we needed to find a place where both of us could do PhDs. And we ended up at UCL. Yeah. So one of those things where the stars kind of align. The stars align. Yeah. Um, So we ended up at UCL together, which was great. Uh, So that we moved our lives uh, to London. Uh, that relationship did end. Um, but I stayed in London and uh, continued my PhD. And then my advisor, my primary advisor, Harold Thimbleby, who's quite famous in the field, he ended up getting a new position at the University of Wales um, and got me funding there and said, you know, why don't you come with me? And so I finished my last year of my PhD at the University of Wales, basically commuting back and forth every week between London and Swansea, which I have to admit was not fun. Uh, that's a, a three-hour commute on a good day. Yeah, that's a bit of a journey. It is, and it's a it's a really different environment. Uh, Swansea is a very small town. It's very much um, it's a great university, I think, especially for undergraduates because it, it's a university campus environment, small city. I think uh, young adults that go there really feel that environment. But at that point, I'm a 33 year old woman, and my relationship is on the rocks, and it's in London. <laughs> so maybe not from a personal perspective, possibly not the best to be commuting every single week out to Wales from London. And as the PhD finished up, did you already have eyes on where you would be uh, continuing professional practice? I thought I would stay with LBI at the time because I'd been contracting with them for years and years and years, all through my PhD, basically. Um, Went through multiple name changes with them. They were Lante, they were SBI, they were Oyster. Um, But I don't even remember why. I was actively talking to them about going permanent, and then another position op- opened up at a small startup called T101, and I sort of fell in love with them and went to them instead. And so that was just kind of kismet. I honestly, looking back, we're, we're now looking at what, like, I guess 13, 14 years, I honestly don't remember why I didn't go to LBI or if one conversation just ended up taking off and the other one sort of petered out. I don't know. It's a really, like, I, I wish I could go back to, well, I probably can go back to emails. But yeah, it was just one of those things. What was the project flow like at somewhere like LBI in those days? Because I'm guessing that some of our listeners will be able to flashback themselves to that period and be full of all kinds of fond and not so fond memories about the kind <laughs> of digital design yeah. that was going on. But also we have a whole bunch of listeners uh, who are much um, yeah, earlier in their careers and for whom that will be a, a bit of a different world. So we're talking here... I guess, sort of mid-2000s, you know, what was a typical yes. kind of a thing that you would have been working on at that time? Yeah, um, I, I worked with, um, they had a division that did really large corporate clients, a lot of banks. Uh, so uh, Deutsche Bank, Barclay Card, um, UBS Bank was a big project. We also worked on a project with Philip Morris, which was their intranet. So for me in the division that I worked in or the team that I worked in, they did really large corporate clients. There was a lot of work that was for intranet, but also a lot of work that was sort of sprucing up or modernizing their websites. There was a really interesting project with UBS Bank that was all about their recruitment site. So their jobs portal, basically, that was really cool. And were you able to apply things that you had bought with you all the way from that original psychology degree in doing that? Yes, absolutely. So even after the psychology degree and when I was studying for my master's at DePaul, I was already working in UX and in um, doing sort of information architecture and interaction design, which back in the late 90s and early 2000s included everything from wireframing to user testing. I mean, I think our profession has really evolved and changed. 
so back then the interaction designer or the information architect was also kind of expected for the most part to do a lot of the user research, uh, but not the visual design because he would work with graphic and visual designers. So slightly different hybrids. And what I was doing with LBI was very similar. It was wireframing. It was trying to understand the interaction design, doing user testing, stakeholder, you know, interviews and research with stakeholders. And that was just a progression and continuing doing what I'd been doing while I was doing my master's degree and a little bit before. So I guess this was the time before unicorns were known as unicorns. That uh, you, you were the, that <laughs> mythical creature that was expected to to do it all. Um, possibly, except for the visual design. I don't. Um, I, it's interesting because now when I hire product designers, I definitely ask you know how how skilled they are in the visual design aspect of their job, and I would ask a lot less about how skilled they are in the research aspect of their job because I think the hybrids that we have now are as much more UX research and then product design, which includes more the interaction design and visual design side. But I never studied graphic design and I never studied visual design, so I always feel that that is my weakest skill set. I always beat up on myself for that quite a bit. My team keeps on telling me to chill out, that I'm not as bad as I think I am, but I think they're just being kind to me. Well, you know, one of the things that I've learned from recording a bunch of these podcasts is particularly for people who are now a certain way into their careers in what is now known as user experiences, the further you go back, the more varied you find the paths were into that field, simply because the field itself, often when people were getting into it, wasn't really clearly defined. For some people, it was a visual design route. For some people, it was coming more from an interest in the computer science side of things. I mean, for you, when you think back to what started getting you interested in digital experiences in the broadest possible sense, can you pin it down to to one particular interest that started to get you focused on that field? I'm a geek. I'm a sci-fi geek. And that's pretty much it. So I had studied psychology to try and figure out people, which is something I realize you can't really do, uh, which is kind of humorous in itself. Um, and then when I discovered that there was this field, when I was studying computer science, I discovered that there was this field that brought psychology together with geekdom, with like literally tech. I was like, oh my God, you mean I can make a living doing this? Um, and that was kind of eye-opening. I hadn't realized that that was the case. I'd heard of things like ergonomics, which are you know another sort of field that precurses what we now think of UX. But I didn't like. I didn't want to do physical design. I'm, I'm not an ergonomist, although I've had some training in my master's degree around that area. I was much more about tech, like digital tech, computers, gadgets, and realizing that somebody would actually pay me to take in all the knowledge that I'd learned in psychology, marry that with some of you know the programming skills that I had, and also like allow me to actually think about how to design for people. That was just kind of amazing. And it all sounds very holistic when I retrospect on it. It was not that holistic of a journey when it happened. It was much more hodgepodgey and being in the right place at the right time and figuring things out as I was going along. But it was that sort of moment where you realize that there's something super cool that brings together several of your interests and people will pay you for it, which is miraculous. I mean, that's the winning combination. So does the interest in science fiction continue? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a geek. I admit it. You know, it, it's funny. I'm hearing from more and more people who work in this area that there's almost a kind of reversing back to looking at some of those examples from science fiction to try and come up with the next big thing. You know, I guess it's always had that role, but then there's a degree of you get into um, actually trying to implement some of these things and into the detail of how you're going to make it happen today. But then perhaps there's a growing mandate within people who are in the field of user experience to look a bit further on behalf of their clients. And I've had a couple of conversations recently on this podcast and with other people in private where uh, they've been talking about what an inspiration some of the things that they're learning from science fiction uh, have Mm. been. Uh, I think that's really true. I also keep on reflecting on things that have made it into popular science fiction that are actually just, we take them for granted as true today. So if you think about a Space Odyssey 2001 and, you know, they're talking to Hal or even Star Trek where you're talking to the computer, but, you know, people talk to their computers all the time. You've got, you know, either a Google device or an Apple device or an Amazon device and you're talking to it and it is a computer. Uh, You can talk into your phone and it will respond. And yet when I was growing up watching Star Trek talking to your computer, well, you didn't even have a computer in your home because it would have been too expensive and taken up your living room. And now it's just, it just is. Nobody thinks it's weird. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wonder if by 
being able to put that into the frame of fiction. You just give people a license to think more creatively about it and to you know, essentially not feel silly about some of the things that they might be proposing. Because if you say, if you look back to what was happening in something like Star Trek, the things that were being proposed were things which were wildly unrealistic in the commercial reality of what people's lives were like at that time. And yet it was kind of a safe space to experiment with those sort of things. I mean, maybe that's something which user experience teams as a whole um, can use as a useful device for the future. Absolutely. I think also it's interesting to see what we now think of as science fiction. So what is modern science fiction sort of telling us will come in the future? And I think a lot of that is actually based on I don't know, kind of cutting edge research that's happening in the field. You know, you have gestural interfaces, speech interfaces, etc. And they don't seem so far fetched anymore. They're just around the corner or fabrics that adjust to body temperature. Well, why not? We kind of have them. They're a little clunky, but you know, three, four or five years down the road, they won't be autonomous cars. Well, they're already on the roads, you know, all of these things. It's really curious to see how much of that is really just around the corner as a bit of reality. Well, I mean, you've had the chance to work for a whole bunch of different companies within the technology industry and what would probably be called sort of media industry. Yeah, you have time at Nokia, you've had time at Google, you've had time at big media company like Shipstead and, and now Spotify. Are there any of those roles which stick out for you as being places where that kind of experimentation was encouraged within the company or, or specifically within the work that you were doing, where there was that that license to think in a, a wider, more creative sense? That's a really good question. I think possibly because I was on the emerging markets team at Google, there was a lot of thinking outside of the box because you're dealing with markets that are inevitably skipping steps in the journey that we take for granted. So you would go on a research or a design sort of field experience, and you would meet really intelligent people who could not type on a keyboard because they'd never used a keyboard. But if you gave them a phone, you couldn't even watch their fingers move. They typed so fast. And you think, well, why? Because they never had to sit in front of a keyboard. And it kind of starts to really question your own reality and your own acceptance of the metaphors and the things that you think make sense. We use all of these metaphors and analogies in design and in technology in general because we've grown up with them and we went from clunky interfaces that were command prompts to GUIs to touch screens. Well, lots of people in the universe went straight to touch screens and that's not weird for them. That's the beauty of field research. It is. When you have the opportunity to do that sort of thing and, and see yeah. it directly, it, it helps Absolutely. to eliminate those kind of biases that you carry with you. Absolutely. And yet you're also dealing with populations that don't have the disposable incomes to buy the latest iPhone or the latest Android device at, you know, a thousand dollar price mark. It's just that's not how those economies work. So you also have to think about how to get interesting technology at a lower price point. It can't it can't be expensive and it has to work on lower end devices that have lots of constraints, like data is at a premium, etc. Which It gives you a really different canvas. And it's a really interesting canvas because here are folks who are amazingly, amazingly, amazingly smart and interested and wanting to use technology to empower and enable themselves. They've got a really different reference point because, again, they may never have sat in front of a keyboard. That's just not, they didn't have computers in their school. They didn't have a computer at home. And there's nothing necessarily good or bad about that. It's just that they came to a technology straight into a mobile phone or straight into, you know, a tablet that they bought. And so their reference is completely different. And they have super duper different constraints around their economic reality and their infrastructure for whatever it is, wireless or, you know, 4G. So that really makes you think in a different way, because you can't just throw the newest hardware at it. And you can't just throw money at it. It has to be a little bit differently created. Does that make, I'm not sure if that even makes sense, but maybe it does. No, it, it absolutely does. And I mean, it throws up a whole bunch of additional questions in, in my mind, not least, does that change how those projects sit internally where you realize as the field researcher, 
out there seeing it for yourself, that there is such a substantial difference between your experience and most likely the experience of the people that it is then going to be reported into within Mm. the organization compared to the sort of people that you are designing that product for. Does that then change how you have to position and relate the findings of that project internally? Yeah, so I think it does. I think it also necessitates that people come with you. So if you're the one responsible for the research or the research team or even the design team, you have to take people with you to the field. I mean, that was very true at Google. It's also true now. Um, I work on the markets business unit at Spotify. It's not just the researchers going out into the field. Uh, Spotify recently launched India. The team often went, that included engineers and product people and all sorts of folks. It's just so much more valuable and important to make sure that it's the holistic team that's out there experiencing that. And what I... What I felt very proud of at Nokia, at Google, at Chipstead, and now at Spotify is that the companies will enable you to do that. It's still up to you as the UX person to set that in motion to a great extent, but the company will not stand in your way and say, no, you cannot take that engineer. No, you cannot have that product person go with you. And I think that's probably the best thing that those companies can do is enabling the UX people to bring their teams with them. Because no report is ever going to be the same as experiencing it for yourself, even if it's for a few days. And I realize that some of that is, I mean, it can be quite controversial because we're overprivileged Westerners going into emerging markets and experiencing them for a week and then saying, you know, oh, we've got this now. Um, We know what to do. Uh, So I don't want to give that impression. But there is something very meaningful of coming out of your comfort zone and stepping into the shoes of the people you're trying to design products for, even if it's for a short time. Absolutely. I think the potential for for shared learning there on both sides um, is enormous. But do you think you've been lucky with the organizations that you've worked for? I mean, Nokia, Google, Shibsted, now Spotify, in there being an appetite for that kind of immersion of the wider team in that field research? Or is that something that you have had to fight for as the leader of those teams? Because having had a bunch of these conversations now around this area with different people, it strikes me that you perhaps have had more opportunity to do that than others. And I'm just wondering whether that's by virtue of choosing good organizations to work for, or whether that's because that's something that you you know, have fought for and insisted upon. Uh, it's definitely something I advocate for. I've never, I've never felt I had to fight for it. Sometimes I've, I've had to prod or argue a little bit, or at least make my case. So maybe I am very lucky in that. Maybe I'm very, I've been very lucky. But even the smaller companies that I've worked for were always very willing to listen when I said we have to meet the users, we have to talk to the users, we have to go to the users. So I've never had pushback in that regard in any way. I remember having one conversation at Google. I greatly doubt the person I had it with would ever remember. So Ellen Eustace was the head of uh, the division at Google that I worked with. And I remember meeting him once um, at a meeting, sort of discussing the strategic way that emerging markets would work going forward. And you know, I was sort of pitching this idea that we have to go and meet the users. And, and he asked, I think he did it on purpose to be a little bit controversial or even a little cheeky. He asked, you know, why can't we just bring them here? And I answered that question. And I said, you know, if we bring them into Mountain View, California, into these pristine buildings with their free snacks and their perfect Wi-Fi, we don't get to see our products and play in the real world. And he laughed. And that was basically the only question I'd ever gotten from upper management to that regard. And I think he was really just doing it to to sort of push me to make sure I could make a cohesive argument more than anything else. I don't think he would have thought anything other than this is a good idea. And yeah, so I I don't feel like I've ever really had to fight for it very hard, advocate for it, maybe, yes, make sure that time is carved out for it, which is, I think, the hardest thing, because we're all trying to go super fast and work super lean and taking two weeks out of everyone's life to, to drag them to someplace that, you know, that can be quite hard. Have you learned things along the way about the, the practical implementation of those kind of field research projects? You know, do you feel now that you're able to shortcut more rapidly to an effective use of that time in the field compared to where you were a few years ago? Uh, absolutely. And I've always felt that it shouldn't just be research field outings. It should also be inspiration. So they can be used strictly for design and for ideation, if I can call it that, just to generate new and interesting ideas for a product team. 
So you don't always have to go out with a very specific bunch of questions to answer. You can instead go out with themes that you want to explore. So yeah, um, I've also found that having local partners is, that's, yeah, that's oxygen. You're not, no one that you work with is going to be an expert in every country you want to visit. So you have to find local partners that you really can work with and can communicate with. So you can explain to them what you're trying to achieve and they are brave enough because you're going to be their client. So they have to be brave enough to push back on you and say, "Mm, that's not going to happen or "Mm, you need to do it differently. That's like so important. I cannot Are these local partners typically uh, other design agencies? Uh, Usually design and research agencies. Um, often research agencies because then they're sort of trying to find the kinds of users or activities that you've kind of stipulated you want to explore and do. Um, and I've had some really great partners over the years. So again, some of that was luck. Some of it was going through your entire network of people and saying, okay, I, I'm going to Ghana. You guys need to tell me who you've worked with in Accra before that, you know, knows their stuff because I'm going to, you know, take 15 people with me. So they've got to be good. Um, and getting those sort of personal connections to work for you. Do you enjoy those trips? Uh, yes, and, yes, and no. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I enjoy them after the fact. <laughs> I enjoy when I'm reflecting on them. I find them tremendously hard work. Uh, and while you're there, you're experiencing 14 to 16 hour days, and it is beyond exhausting. And then you come back and your head is swimming with everything you've learned and you've got about a week to get that stuff out of your head and out of everybody else's head into something, whether that's a report or a presentation, it doesn't matter. It has to get out of their head and into something. Otherwise it's lost and, you know, they get caught up in their daily lives and their daily work tasks. And that entire process is tremendously full on at the time that it's happening. And it's only after the fact when I'm sorting through the images and the videos and the learning. And I think, wow, this is absolutely freaking fantastic. Yeah, it's a funny dynamic that uh, I think in some ways, without that pressure and without that sense of that that focus on trying to make as much of the time uh, as possible while you're there, it would be difficult to do it. And yet in the moment, you know, that that can feel pretty intense. But Mm. I I suppose it's possibly something which extends to other areas of experimentation for user experience teams too. That, That point you make there about you've got to do something with it. You've got to get it into usable form in a relatively rapid way. Mm. I wonder if that's something which is also true of any form of sort of speculative experimentation by a user experience team, whether it's people working on their own pet projects or whether it's people bringing in tangential experiences. Unless you're actually putting that intelligence to some sort of use, there is the risk that it just falls through the cracks. Definitely, at least on a company level. I mean, it will always inform the people who were there. They will always carry those experiences with them. They will have changed them in some way, shape, or form. They will have changed their way of thinking in some way, shape, or form. And that in itself is hugely important and valuable. But that's not necessarily what the company paid for, right? The company employs us to do to do work. And I think you, as as any kind of professional, we have to be very pragmatic about that. So it has to then, outside of this great learning that all of these individuals have taken away with them, and you hope that some of them have experienced things that have fundamentally informed how they think, because that would be the best, wouldn't it? It also has to come out in some sort of format that when every single one of those 15 or 20 people that have gone on that trip are gone to other teams or other companies, there is still something that can be pointed to by the company that says, we did this, we learned this, it impacted that. And that to me is super important. And again, that's the pragmatic side of it. There is this inspirational and wonderful side of it that I think is invaluable. But the pragmatic side of me says it has to come out in some sort of format that will be useful for the future UX designer, for the future product owner on this project five years from now. Because they will want to know why did we do, why did we make that choice? Why did we do that? And they will need to be able to point at something and say, okay, the team went out and met these people in this place, and they saw that this would work. Well, you and I, when we first met, uh, it was around the time that you were working on what I think you broadly described as a community of practice of user mm. experience focused people within Shipstead, a very big global media organization. And it, it makes me wonder. Is that kind of body of knowledge part of the glue which sticks a community like that together and makes it happen? I would like to think it is. 
I'm not sure if it is in practice, though. So in theory, I would love to think that that is the case. Again, I think that it's super important to carve out the time to be aware that that body of knowledge exists, to be able to dip into that body of knowledge. It's important for UX practitioners to sort of introduce new people coming into the company and say, hey, this is where you can find stuff. You know, here is our style guides. Here is our design thinking library. Um, here is research and where you can find the research that we did on these things. What I find often is that we don't do enough of that. And I think, again, the precious commodity of time is the reason why, because we have day-to-day tasks and we just keep going. And that also means that we will sometimes reinvent the wheel because we didn't realize that a year ago, some other group within the same company had been out there and asked these questions and done this thinking, which I think is unfortunate. I think I think it can be compared in some ways to what in the industry is called tech debt. So you you optimize for speed and you accumulate tech debt and the debt is, you know, code that's not been written possibly in the best way in order to optimize for speed. I think we need this concept of UX debt as well. We optimize for speed. We want to get things out to users. We want them to be as good as they can be great if possible. But because we're optimizing for speed, we sometimes forget that we have to lift our head up, look around and see, well, what else is out there? What have other teams done? What can I learn from them? Have we tried these things before? What other things should we be thinking about? I think that's the real challenge. Yeah, that's a difficult balance to strike. As you say, you've got that pressing imperative. Everyone has that pressing imperative, whether they're working client side or agency side, that you have to deliver on the thing that you're doing in the moment. And no matter how much you know that some additional notation around the thing that you're doing or a a meta layer of information that would make that experience useful to people potentially in the future. All of that requires additional time. And even if you know that that is going to be useful and valuable, there's always that trade-off between can we deliver the thing uh, and can we package up a bunch of stuff around the thing that may then provide building blocks for the future. It's, it's a it's a very tricky one. Um, but that, that whole area of the, the community of practice is something which has always sort of fascinated me, particularly because you've had the chance to see this in different ways at a bunch of different organizations and across a, a really extended period in, in the industry. I mean, are there, there other building blocks that you've found over the years represent a healthy and thriving community of practice around user experience? Yeah, and I think it's the really happy collaboration and coexistence, maybe even, I'm going to say codependency, but I mean it in a good way, not in some weird bad way, between product, the various fields in UX, and engineering. Because what, I, what I've what i seen work best in teams is when there's this really healthy debate and push and pull between the disciplines, where they all have to compromise, where you get into the room and you, you end up in, in a heated debate, possibly even argument, and you all come out of the room and none of you is particularly happy because none of you have gotten your way, yet the compromise that has come out of it is going to be best for the company, for the user, for the sustainability of the code, for the sustainability of the UX. And so to me, that's another building block is like making sure that these teams feel like they can do that, like they are partners in, in producing this thing that is marvelous. Because I don't think any one discipline can do it on their own. So to me, that that's like a critical building block. And it, it's not just the responsibility of UX or just the responsibility of the engineers or just the responsibility of the product managers. Like They have to, to have those arguments. They have to have those debates. They have to have those discussions. They obviously also have to like talk to sales and marketing. And, you know, it's that sort of, it's the making sure that all of us feel a little bit uncomfortable and are not getting our way. So the, the compromises that we make make sense. I think that's a, a critical building block. Another one for me is the fact that you can't just isolate a single engineer or a single designer. Like people have to work across disciplines, but also within their discipline to bounce off of each other. And that's a really crucial building block. And when this is especially true, I think in early stage startups, you can't hire four designers. So you've got one designer and you've got a few engineers and you've got one product person and you're trying to work as fast as you can. When the disciplines are completely isolated and you have nobody else in your own discipline to bounce off of, that can be very alienating and very difficult for a lot of people. I also think that you get stuck in your own ideas because you have nobody else to bounce them off of. So I think another building block that I try to put into place is even if you've got a super lean, agile team that only has one designer on it, that that one designer has a buddy someplace else that they can bounce off of at least a couple of times a week. 
you know, even if it's like little informal crits or conversations over coffee, whatever it is, that person has to have a buddy. They have to have somebody else that is in their field that they can bounce off of. Do you think that works cross organizations as well in the uh, in that example you're citing there of a, a small startup where it's only realistic to have a single designer do you think that kind of that that feeling of, of community and being able to bounce off can happen uh, you know across a bunch of different companies within an industry who form those sort of informal partnerships with each other i think to some extent obviously not as closely and not as deeply as when they work in the same company because there's only so much you can discuss about your day-to-day work um, without, you know, giving away literally company secrets. So I think if that's the best that can happen, then that's what you go for. But ideally, you very quickly bring on other experts. Um, again, we can look to engineering for some inspiration here. There's, you know, well-documented ideas around pair programming and making sure that you have more than one particular engineer from a particular engineering discipline. So you would never or you would try never to isolate, you know, an Android engineer completely on their own or an iOS engineer completely on their own. You would try and pair them with others. So I think that is equally as important for UX discipline. I think it's just not always as easy to do. Yeah, for sure. There's some practical challenges, which I guess yep. need to be, be overcome with that. Uh, I wanted to go back just a little bit, Lydia, and, and ask you about the transition between the different roles that you've had. Because... Uh, some of these organizations that you've worked with, I guess, you could define as being within quite different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and although user experience has always been a threat between them, I'm wondering if there's one particular transition that has stood out for you as feeling like the biggest leap or, or feeling the most different for you. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think when I left consulting and went in-house, was probably the biggest leap, to be okay. honest. So when would that have been? Um, when I left agency, which was reading room, and went to Nokia. So I'd been contracting and consulting for, oof, I guess, like five years at that point, And then I went in-house. And was that um, a conscious decision at the time? You know, Was that motivated by, I need to move client side? It wasn't. It wasn't. So I wanted to leave agencies. And I wanted to leave agencies because I felt like I didn't have enough strategic stake in the outcomes of a project. And it it was beginning to drive me moderately crazy. So you would do what you felt was the best for the company, the project, and the constraints of money and time that you were given, and the best for the user, and definitely the best for the client. Um, Reading Room, which was the agency I was at at the time, they had really great clients like non-for-profits, government sector clients, things like Royal Mail, uh, NHS, etc. So you felt very emotionally attached to some of these clients because they're doing good work. Um, like we worked on World Wildlife Fund, WWF UK, and it's an organization I've been involved with or at least donated to my entire adult life. So, you know, you really, you really want to succeed. But ultimately, they're the client and you just deliver the service and they don't necessarily have to go with your best recommendations. And you can't, that healthy argument that I just described, you can't have that because they're the client. I mean, you can definitely try and convince and you can try and argue with them. But ultimately, if they want to put four pages of text into your design, which was designed for, you know, three bullet points, they're going to put four pages of text in a design that was meant for four bullet points. And that's that. Um, And after a few years of that, I really wanted to go someplace where I had more skin in the game, I guess is the terminology I would use. Yeah, I mean, that must have been quite an interesting place to be at that time as well, because I think this this would have been sort of late 2000s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, which would have been a, quite a challenging time for Nokia, thinking about what was happening with their handset business at the time. That's sort of two years after the release of the first iPhone, uh, and Nokia perhaps getting the first indications that or was not quite as it had been in their cozy world of smartphones. Yeah, so I joined Nokia in 2009. I think that was literally just before the first iPhone touch device launched. Uh, I think possibly 2007 was the first 2000, iPhone. Was it the first? Yeah, how okay. time flies. Oh my goodness, you're right. Okay, so then 2009 would have probably been right around the time that the second one launched and was really taking off in popularity. And then right after that, Android launched. And that's when things really started to tank. But Nokia hadn't caught on to that yet. Like they really hadn't caught on to that at all yet. Uh, Yeah, kind of interesting, the lag effect there. I mean, thinking back to that time, um, if my recollection serves me right, that possibly, at least in sales terms, would have been something of a peak for Nokia. 
Yes, um, it was. And yet the writing was on the wall kind of all around them. And it seemed to some looking from the outside into the organisation that it was only Nokia which couldn't see that, couldn't see the danger. Yeah. So I'm trying to think like, if the first iPhone was 2007, the second one would have been 2008. I mean, I'm trying to think back when, when did it really like, when did you start seeing like the cues out the door type phenomenon? And it probably would have been 2009, 2010. But I think, again, sort of looking back at it 10 years later, I think what really did it was Android because now you had two of these touchscreen devices and Nokia was really trying to work on the Mego phone, which was, um, a different kind of operating system, also touchscreen, to compete with those phones. It never did very well from what I remember, although I could be wrong. Um, and th- they never quite got there. And then they had some Microsoft phones. And, yeah. So yeah, it, it was interesting because I joined when they were still at their peak, they were in everyone's handbag and everyone's pocket. And I left just that they, as they were sort of really starting thinking about what the heck is going on redundancies were starting. We'd had our first round of redundancies, mostly at the factory sort of production level. So yeah, but projects were being canceled, literally right, left and center. So really, really, really challenging time for that company. Yeah, that's a a difficult environment to to be in, I imagine. I I think for most of the my, um, my friends and former colleagues that stayed for multiple more years, it probably was, I think I exited pretty quickly, just because um, ironically, Google had kind of gotten in touch with an opportunity. So I didn't experience most of it. I kind of left right as it started to get really, I think, challenging in terms of, you know, the sales figures really being hit, etc. I didn't, I only witnessed that secondhand through, through close friends who were still at Nokia and were like, Oh, you got out at the right time. But I wasn't thinking of that at the time. I just had an opportunity. I guess that's the benefit of, of hindsight. Yeah. Um, but tell, tell me about the, the motivation for the most recent move to join Spotify. Um, were you a Spotify user yourself before you yeah, joined? Um, yeah, for basically since they launched in London, so uh, or the UK, I should say. So I've been using Spotify literally since they launched in the UK. Love the product. Um, they were looking for a head of design for their growth opportunities team, which is part of the markets business unit or the R and D unit of the markets business unit, which also looks at launching new markets, new product, which is near and dear to my heart. So it just made sense to do that. Okay. I, so, so I mean, how much of the role is future facing work versus working on sort of what people know and love today as the Spotify core product? So our team doesn't really work on the core product that you and I use. Again, um, our team launches things like Spotify Lite, uh, Spotify Stations. Uh, it does market launches across the world, including the latest launch in India, which has made some very nice headlines. I'm very proud. So it's not actually the core product that we're working on the most. What was the the heart of the motivation for you in terms of the relation to what Spotify actually does? I mean, I guess most people still know it as being about music, but there's also now podcasts as well. I mean, for you, did you come at it as a, as a music lover, as a, as a podcast lover, as someone who's just interested in uh, the future of, of design and, and businesses which are doing transformative things? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely the latter. I am a user. I do listen to music and podcasts on Spotify um, and will continue to do so because I think it's a great product. But for me, it wasn't so much about music or audio. It was about the fact that here is a company that is transforming how we consume content um, and really trying to engage different markets and different audiences across the globe in building this sort of the cultural phenomenon that is music, that is spoken word. And that's really interesting. It is such an emotive thing. I mean, it's... I always admire companies which seem to understand that for a lot of people, music and, and audio it is more than just another form of content, that it's it has a deeper resonance. I, I think back to a talk that we had at, at Mech some years ago. We had a, a guy come uh, and explain a little bit about some of the origins of why sound has such a powerful emotional effect on people, some of the, the psychology of that. Um, I mean, it, it strikes me that that comes with a certain amount of responsibility when you're, you're taking on a, a design role in relation to, to something which can have such a powerful influence in people's lives. I do. I do think so. But I think so much of what we do in the tech industry has such huge impact on our reality. I mean, can you say, 
what did you do before you had Google Docs or before you and I could have this Skype call or how much have we actually changed our reality? You know, we everyone seems to be picking on Facebook these days, so we should be no different. How how much has Facebook changed the reality of how we connect with people and, and talk to people? Or let's pick on LinkedIn. How did we find jobs before LinkedIn? Like We sent letters and CVs were printed on paper. So there's so much that we've done that have completely and utterly changed everything that is our reality. There is, I mean, there's an entire generation of people that have already grown up not knowing what it's like to look up something in a yellow pages because they've always had the internet. And that's a huge cultural shift. They don't use physical maps because the map is something that exists on this device that we ironically call a phone, which is the last thing we use it for. But if you think about that, there there is literally a group of adults that probably hasn't really used maps. Like they don't sit in a car and use an atlas. They just turn on GPS and whatever Google Maps and they're done. And that's a huge cultural shift. It is. And I'm constantly fascinated by that sort of tension between the degree to which things are being transformed in historically, in the historic context, a really relatively short space of time, but sufficiently iteratively and seemingly sufficiently slowly in the moment that people often don't notice it. You just get these little reminders every now and again. Uh, There's a podcast that we recorded recently with a guy called Omar Bakshi, who's now the design director at Smart Design. And I'd actually met Omar and he'd spoken at our MEX conference 12 years ago. And I reminded him about the findings of the session that he was involved with 12 years ago. And at that point, that would have been 2007. And the conclusion of his session, which was very valid at the time, was that people simply aren't using the internet on mobile devices. And these are some of the three or four ways that we might try to encourage people to use the internet more on said mobile device. And when you think back to what that experience was like for users at the time, it is a world away from what we have today. And yet that's only 12 years. Uh, And it seems like an age within the industry. And yet when we look back through the lens of history, we will probably see that as being a series of very significant transformations that happened within the blink of the eye. I guess that, as you say, that's that's where the responsibility comes in across the board. Absolutely. And, you know, that doesn't just have to do with music. And, and quite honestly, we've now transformed the conversation of how do we get people off their bloody screens? And you, the, the last time you sat on public transport of any form, everyone's on a screen constantly. My, my six-year-old child tells me that I'm on a screen too much. Mommy, get off the screen. Mommy, you're on the screen again. You know, that's shocking. So we used to have conversations about how to get people to use the internet on their mobile device. And now what we're trying to do is get them off their mobile device. Yeah, how quickly that has changed. And, and interesting, yeah, how quickly uh, someone at age six has picked up on mm-hmm. that dynamic. You know, all, all of that has got to come from somewhere around them in, in, in their environment, both the sense of being able to recognize that too much screen time is not necessarily good for anyone, but also the fact that that is something to pick people up on. You know, that that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing times that we, uh, that we live in. Um, have you thought about what comes next? It sounds like you're having a whale of a time at, at Spotify, <laughs> so I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon, but... I'm always fascinated by, especially when it's someone who's had the wealth of experience that you have, whether there's anything that you haven't yet had the chance to work on that you're really hoping you will do in the future. Yeah, I would definitely like to go and do something with physical tech again, for sure. Uh, The last time I would have touched anything physical would have been Nokia. And there is something to be said for hardware tech, if you want to call it that. I would really love to find a way to do that again, for sure. I think I would also like to go back to startup land uh, for various reasons, but predominantly because there's something very powerful about being in a company at a very early stage of its journey and how that allows you to impact what's done and how it's done and why it's done and how you're going to do it in the future. So we'll see. Have you got any sense yet of where you think that might come from? Because I'm fascinated as well at the moment by new I guess, new form factors, which might become our sort of dominant interface with the digital world. I mean, my a lot of my career has been around the rise of the smartphone and mobile devices of, of one kind or another, things that you hold in your hand and serve as these little sort of windows on the digital world. And clearly, 
that's not going to continue forever. There is going to be a dominant form factor of some kind. Are you getting any sort of inklings of where you think that might be or what excites you about where it might come from? Oof, um, yeah, that's a really good question. There's so much cool stuff out there. Um, there's obviously wearables, and I'm not just talking about the watch. That's the least interesting to me, actually. It's more like materials. There is the fact that we are getting off screen and we're doing voice interfaces, which is super interesting. There's all the car tech that's going on and the transport technology, which is like fundamentally cool stuff. I hate driving. I, I would love for there to be driverless cars everywhere. I would never have to drive again. It would be amazing. I think you might be in the right part of the world for that. With Sweden and, and Volvo. It sounds like there's some quite interesting things going on there. Yeah, and there's several startups here as well. So yeah, that would be fantastic. So there's all this stuff that's going on that's so fundamentally interesting. I'm also really interested in, in how we can actually get tech out of our lives in the way that it's currently in our lives. Like Again, that way too much screen time, technology not empowering us, but actually instead taking over our lives, the, you know, the lack of privacy, all of this. Like, so how do we get back to a place where technology is actually empowering instead of exhausting? To me, that's a super interesting question as well. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Um, I don't know how that's going to play itself out yet, but I, I'm super curious. Well, perhaps we'll have to reconnect again in a little while and see whether or not you've got any closer to an answer, because uh, as I say, those are questions which are fascinating me at the moment as well. So it'd be good to, to reconnect on that. Um, but thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show today and, and share just a little part, I guess, of what's been a, you know, a long journey for you in this area. So I'll be looking forward to staying in touch and catching up on it again in the future. Thank you, Merrick. Thanks so much for taking the time and including me. wonderful to get insight from Lydia into not just what it takes to lead design within large organizations, but also how that path emerged for her. I guess it was perhaps another reminder to all of those who are at earlier stages in their career that you know, what can often look like these big unassailable job titles are often the result of all of those chances, sideways steps, and varied backgrounds and experiences that we all carry with us. So we've got some great conversations coming up in future episodes. Uh, we have Joe Barnard, who founded the design agency Marama, uh, and has been doing some very interesting work with some concept designs for the future of smartphones. Uh, she's going to be uh, in a future episode. Also, Teddy Van Gelderen, uh, the founder of Akendi, um, talking about one of the books that he's written uh, and some of the uh, challenges of founding and leading not just uh, Akendi, but also another agency that he founded further back in his career as well. So if you're enjoying the podcast, why not spread a little love around? Uh, there are really two great ways that you can help get the word out to others. So the first, just have a think about who you might know who would enjoy listening to an episode of this uh, and send them the link. You can send them to mobileuserexperience.com with the podcast section where all of the episodes are archived, uh, or just tell them to search for Mex Design Talk in whatever podcast player that they use. Alternatively, if you're feeling especially happy about what you've been listening to in this episode and all of the others that uh, we've done with the Mex podcast, uh, go and give the show uh, a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or wherever else you get your podcasts. That all helps to bump us up the ratings and get out there to new listeners. So I'm going to be back in two weeks' time with another episode. Uh, we also have another of our MEX Dining Club events coming up in London on the 15th of May. So do get in touch. The email address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com if you're interested in coming along to that to meet other listeners or some of the interview guests that we've had on the podcast. And I can send you an invitation with all of the details. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye.